the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside with Elna. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside. My name is indeed Elna Schutz. I am VowFM's favorite nerd. And on the Science Inside, we take an hour to look at some science. But if you think that's not for you, it has nothing to do with your life, what some people in a lab do, I hope that this show will change your mind because we love looking at things inside the news, inside big stories that people are talking about and just inside our lives in general. And I hope that all of the science we cover on here leaves you thinking like, hey, scientists are pretty cool. Okay, maybe not cool, but at least acceptable in your social circles. Today on the show, we look at a disease you have probably heard about more in novels and movies than in the headlines. But the foaming at the mouth, staggering and pretty dangerous illness of dogs and other animals has jumped from the page and into reality right here in Mzanzi. I'm of course talking about rabies. Every year, about 40,000 people receive a rabies prevention treatment called post-exposure prophylaxis, prophylaxis rather, PEP, uh, which is also the word used in other cases such as for HIV and AIDS exposure. And this particular PEP is for rabies. And you have to get it if you've been in contact with a potentially infected animal. So about about 600 to 700 cases of rabies are diagnosed in domestic and wild animals annually in South Africa, which is pretty scary in itself. But there has been a recent rise of rabies cases in the country, specifically in the KZN area. And four people so far have died, including very sadly a three-year-old boy who, who did pass away after being scratched by a rabid stray cat. And... It might be something that you think you've heard of, but I'm not so sure that lots of ordinary people really are up to scratch when it comes to what rabies is. So we went out on the streets of RFM land, of the Science Inside land, just to ask some people, hey, what do you know about rabies, especially if you are a pet owner? Have a listen. What I know about rabies is that um, it can affect also human beings and then if that happens and you don't get any medical attention within like week you can actually die the symptoms is vomiting i once read a book about this and the person was affected when he died he died of seizures yes i know about rabies and yes a dog should be vaccinated at least once a year i know about the rabies that affects animals in particular dogs I guess um, I have pets at home but I don't necessarily know much about rabies Hmm. So exactly as I was saying earlier, it does seem that a lot of people, ordinary people, know that it exists, but not that much more about it, especially how it might affect your pets if you have dogs and cats at home, um, how it transfers to humans. All of that is, of course, what the science, uh, science Inside is about and 
all of that stuff. We will be teaching you later in the show in our main story where we really look deeper at this disease. Then it's unscience. This time, it is one of one for those of us who don't get enough sleep. I know I am one of them. So we will be preaching to the choir in unscience. And unfortunately, this isn't good news. Then later, we look at the scientists behind the science with Nolwazi Nom. Bona, who is trying to make new ways, create new ways of making solar energy with nanomaterials. Very interesting conversation coming up there. If you'd like to be part of the conversation. For this show, Vow FM is the place you want to go. So at Vow FM on Twitter and Voice of Vit on Facebook. You can also find us on the WhatsApp line 084-078-4912. If you just want to give a shout out and say, hey, I always get fluffy vaccinated. I know rabies is a threat. I do my best. Or maybe if you have a big question for us around rabies or any of the other things we'll be talking about on the show today, that's where you want to go. And then if you miss any of this discussion, you can find the podcast on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Please note that link has changed. So vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. But before we get into all of that, we like to keep you informed up to the newest, uh, the newest update in science news. And we'll do that right after this. This week's Science Headline. Today I am in studio with one of our producers, Lebel. What do you have for us today in the news, Lebel? Hello, Alna. Uh, today we have NASA launching the Transit Outer Planet Survey Satellite, or TESS, for short. TESS's mission is to find worlds beyond our solar system and the possibilities of life elsewhere. TESS was successfully launched on the 9th of April and will begin its quest as a planet hunter. Within a period of weeks, TESS will use six orbit correction maneuvers to travel in elongated orbits until it reaches the moon. This will give it the gravitational force that it needs to begin its 13.7 day orbit around the Earth and survey the universe for new planets. Okay, so anybody who uh, who listens to the Science Society knows I'm a huge planet and space enthusiast, so I love anything that comes from NASA. But tell us a little bit more, how exactly is the satellite going to determine um, whether there's life and, you know, living things, aliens or otherwise, on these new worlds? All right, okay. So what TESS will be doing will be, it will be watching for a phenomenon called transist. This is when a planet passes in front of its star from the position of an observer causing a pattern in the dip of the star's brightness. Essentially, you will see the light from the star getting darker as the planet passes by. Then, to answer your question, the researcher will use uh, spectroscopy to study the planet's absorption and emission of light as i said before you'll see the darkening of the star as the planet passes by to figure out a planet's mass its density and atmospheric composition to see if it's anything like our earth that of course starts you off in the right direction knowing which planets are the ones you should look at when it comes 
to forms of life and obviously we're not talking about fully fledged aliens here it might just be water or um, you know bacteria anything like that but Lebo our universe is quite a big backyard we have here in space how long is it going to take to sift through all of this definitely the universe is quite big the survey mission will run for two years and since trying, a ca- trying to catch a glimpse of the worlds beyond us isn't an easy task, scientists have divided the sky into 26 sections. Then, TESS will use its special wide-field cameras to map 13 sections of the southern sky in its first year. Then it will map the next 13 sections of the northern sky in its second year. And then every time the satellite passes by the Earth, it will transmit a full frame of images that it's taken. This will only cover 85% of the sky, though. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, this means that we may be closer to finding out if we're not the only life forms in the universe. And my story is from NASA. Straight, straight from the horse's mouth. I am very skeptical about the idea of of life on other planets. Not life itself, but um, the idea of aliens. But I am glad that NASA is trying to figure out what else is happening on exoplanets. It's definitely very interesting. Definitely. Um, on my side level, I have a story that comes from a lot of different places. The Guardian has covered it, Live Science, Fortune, as well as, very importantly, the Australian Medical Journal. And there is an outbreak happening in Australia at the moment that is pretty terrifying by all measures. There's been a sharp increase of cases of something called the Beruli ulcer in the last few years especially in a region of Australia called Victoria and there were an estimated almost 300 cases last year and it does seem to be uh, almost at epidemic proportions now in this area Okay, I know no spreading of disease is ever good news, but what makes this one unique? Well, I highly recommend that you do not Google image search this if you are ske- if you are squeamish, just don't. Just trust me and do not have a look at this because it is a flesh-eating disease. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's quite scary. It starts off as a small lump, kind of like an insect bite with no pain at all. So you might not even fully realize what's happening. It then gets into a fatty layer between your skin and your muscle. And that is where it spreads. So while this might be happening, you may have no idea until the infection comes to the surface in the form of an ulcer that is now incredibly painful and already causing quite a lot of damage and this is terribly serious of course because apart from eating away at soft tissue it can get to your bones it can cause permanent disfigurement and long-term disability so that means there is a lot of reconstructive surgery and very long recovery periods involved Oh, wow, that's terrible. But can it be treated? Thankfully, yes. There are antibiotics that have a very high rate, almost 100% of curing the infection um, once it has been caught. But they are often very expensive. They have strong side effects. And as I said, there's quite a lot of plastic surgery involved here. So you're not going to be back to hundreds after this. You may have lost a limb or lost part of your, uh, you know, part of a limb. 
besides losing limbs, it's good news at least that there is a cure out there. Yeah, it is encouraging that we can at least treat it with antibiotics, but scientists are still baffled about why did this spike happen now and in such a particular place like Victoria. It has actually been in this area since around the 1940s and in about 33 other countries, notably Nigeria has struggled with this quite a bit. And here's the scary thing, anybody can get it, including children. And the big problem with this disease is that scientists don't know where the bacteria is coming from. Oh my gosh, that is bad. That makes it really difficult to find solutions. Do they not even have a hunch, maybe? So currently they think it might be through mosquitoes and possums and that those might be the carriers, especially possums. But the scientists are calling for very urgent government funding from Australia to support the research and hopefully find a way to curb this epidemic. Because as you can hear, it's quite a scary one and you also don't want this bacteria to spread anywhere else. Speaking of things that are medically scary, we are actually carrying on in this vein, but hopefully with a little bit more um, just insight that can feel that can that can help us understand a different spread, namely rabies. After the break, we will be looking at this disease that in, in that influences both humans and animals. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. My name is Elna Schutz, and we now turn to a story about rabies. You've heard about it in books. You know it exists. Maybe you, like myself, are imagining a dog staggering down the street foaming at the mouth it is of course that but a lot more and up till now in the last little bit there have been up to around four cases confirmed dead in humans of rabies in KZN and the rest of South Africa so even though that isn't a very large number it is something that we need to look at and make sure we understand especially if you own a dog or interact with dogs regularly so our producer Bridget LePere went out to find out a little bit more and set all of our minds at ease. Animals play an important role in society and having a pet in your home can be the most rewarding experience. In addition to dogs being trained as search dogs for the police force or guide dogs for the blind. Dogs are valued companions which certainly affect the quality of human life. Having said this, losing your four-legged companion to a disease such as rabies can be very devastating. Even though rabies is not a curable disease, it is preventable through regular vaccinations. Rabies is a viral disease that affects the nervous tissue of any mammal. The virus is usually transmitted through the bite of an animal, usually a dog, which is a human being's closest mate. The virus is present in the dog's saliva. Once it bites a human being, the virus enters the bloodstream. It then travels to the brain. Should this happen, the individual's chances of survival are close to none. Professor Andrew Lasevitz, a veterinarian specializing in mechanisms of infectious disease in the Department of Companion Animal Clinical Studies at the University of Pretoria, adds that it may be a while before an individual is symptomatic. In the following insert, he explains how the killer rabbit virus slowly infiltrates the nervous system and eventually attacks the brain unawares. 
across the world, the most important vector is the dog. There are other, obviously, mammal vectors that can transmit the disease, but by far the most important vector is the domestic dog. And once a human being is bitten by an infected dog, the virus will infect a nerve, so a peripheral nerve, say on your hand or wherever you're bitten. And at that point, the human being remains completely without symptoms. And then the virus slowly makes its way up the nerve until it reaches the brain. Once the virus is in a nerve, in the hand or the foot or wherever it is, it is outside of the body's immune system. So the body will never know that it was there and the body's immune system would be unable to neutralize the virus. So nervous tissue is regarded uh, as sort of a privileged site. So the immune system is unable to uh, clear the virus from nervous tissue. So once the virus is in the peripheral nerve, it migrates up that peripheral nerve towards the brain. And then it's only once the virus is actually in the brain of an individual that that individual becomes symptomatic. Once a virus is in a nerve, peripheral nerve or the brain, there's no treatment that it would be effective. So rabies is the only infectious disease actually that carries a 100% mortality. So the moment an individual is symptomatic from rabies or their nervous tissue is infected because of rabies, that individual will die. There's no effective treatment. It is important for a bitten individual to seek medical attention following a dog bite, whether they are aware of a dog's health status or not. Rabies has a 100% mortality rate, and should the bitten individual fail to seek the necessary medical care, the results thereafter may be fatal. The only time that there is a small window for treatment is before the virus enters a nerve at the bite site. So you have a very small window of several hours after an infected bite to apply post-exposure prophylaxis to try and prevent that individual's nervous tissue from becoming infected because obviously once the virus is in the nervous tissue, there's nothing that can be done about it. And so you will remain free of all disease until the virus reaches the brain, then the moment it hits the brain, that's when human beings begin to show clinical signs. And it's also the time at which the animal vector, so a dog or a cat or a wild animal, would begin to show clinical signs. So you're disease-free until it's in the brain. Although you are infected before it gets to the brain, you would be without any clinical signs. The post-exposure prophylaxis involves several three things. Cleaning the wound vigorously, a local infiltration of the bite site with a hyperimmune serum, and then a series of vaccinations that follows that. That's the, the sort of general protocol that's used in this country to treat a person that's had an exposure. Rabies is said to be responsible for about 55,000 human deaths per year globally and is responsible for millions of animals dying around the world. Deaths which could be easily prevented through a life-saving vaccine. So you may question, why is it that we are faced with this challenge in the era of technology and modern medicine. Professor Lysovitz responds. If you look at the cause of death from neonatal diarrhea or malnutrition or malaria or TB or HIV, rabies is a tiny, 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 tiny cause of burden of disease across the human population. That's probably one of the reasons why it doesn't get much attention from health policy makers and budget when it comes to trying to prevent disease. It is actually an insignificant cause of mortality when you compare across the board, rabies is a very insignificant cause of mortality. The way people die is obviously dramatic and the fact that there's 100% mortality is also dramatic because no other disease has that level of mortality. In one sense, it probably gets 
too little attention, but in another sense, one can understand why it gets less attention than something like TB or HIV or malaria or neonatal diarrhea or you know, things that are significantly more common as a cause of mortality than what rabies is. Controlling rabies continues to be a challenge because there's no other way of stopping it from infecting domestic animals other than vaccinating them. These are some of the challenges faced by vets and the Department of Environmental Health. Vaccination of the population can also be problematic. If you think about vaccine drives in rural environments, one vaccine drive a year trying to get sort of 60 or 70 percent of the dogs in an area vaccinated means that by the end of the year following vaccination, that 60 or 70 percent is probably down to 20 or 30 percent for the simple reason that many of the dogs that you vaccinated a year ago are now dead. And in that year, many new puppies have been born. So a fully naive population has replaced what was the vaccinated population. So a single vaccine drive in a year is unlikely to be effective at raising the level of herd immunity amongst the dog population to prevent the spread of the disease. Several vaccination drives a year in these environments would generally be necessary to maintain herd immunity 60 or 70 percent which should be enough to prevent outbreaks of disease in the human population. But achieving that level of vaccine coverage in the dog population is a lot of work. And I think that's part of the reason why it's um, a disease which is proving to be difficult to control. The amount of energy and investment necessary to achieve sufficient vaccine coverage in the domestic dog population is high. Vaccinations on their own are not a fail-proof method of preventing the virus because achieving sufficient vaccine coverage in the domestic dog population proves to be a tedious task which requires money, time and effort. Professor Lysavitz adds that even though a dog population may be vaccinated in one vaccination drive, there is a requirement to have the dog population vaccinated several times in the year. In addition to this, new puppies being introduced to the dog population makes the monitoring and vaccinating efforts more taxing. I think there are a couple of things that make it a difficult disease to deal with. Firstly, I think most of the exposures occur in rural settings where healthcare facilities are few and far between. I think it occurs amongst populations that have low levels of educational information about the disease, so they're exposed and they don't understand the significance of their exposure. And so the first time they present for healthcare is when they're already symptomatic, which is obviously too late. I think the lack of education and the failure to present early for care would probably be the two major factors. I think the, the other thing that makes it difficult to deal with is the kinds of environments in which this disease is transmitted. The dog population is difficult to vaccinate. The majority of these dogs are not exactly feral. And they're not dogs that don't have owners. They do generally have owners, but they wander around freely and they are mostly largely uh, unvaccinated. And that's probably because vaccine is not easy to get in those areas and the vaccine-seeking behavior of those pet owners, you know, they don't think of vaccinating their animals unless the state provides it for free, which means you have a very large population of unvaccinated dogs which are fully susceptible to disease and um, available to transmit it. Whereas if you think of the developed parts of South Africa where pets are owned and vaccinated regularly, the herd immunity amongst the domestic dog population is really high, which means it's far less likely to be transmitted. The levels of education are also higher and health care seeking behaviour is definitely more of a priority. So I think those are the things that make rabies problematic or complex to deal with. 
because the rabies virus may remain in the bloodstream without any physical symptoms, it is essential that dogs suspected of carrying the disease or a human being that has been bitten by a dog receives proper diagnosis to ensure speedy medical attention. Professor Lysavitz further explains what the necessary steps should be taken in ensuring the virus is contained. The problem with it is there are many things that can make a dog look rabid without it actually having rabies. So there are other diseases which are far more common, which are likely to present with the types of behavior abnormalities that can be typical of rabies. So although there is a suspicion index for the disease, and if it is suspected, steps are taken, it's the kind of thing which is not seen very frequently, which means by the time it's suspected or diagnosed, there's often been significant human exposure which then ends up being problematic because you've had a number of humans exposed before the dog was diagnosed and then you have to go back and trace all these people and make sure that they've been treated appropriately. Tracing them can take days or weeks and often then that's too late. So that's another thing that makes it problematic is sometimes the diagnosis in the dog comes long after the exposure of many humans, which means then post-exposure prophylaxis in those humans is no longer going to be effective. So an early diagnosis and an early tracing of exposed human beings is crucial to preventing the disease developing in people. Rabies is not the only virus that you should only worry about. Other deadly viruses that your lovely port friend should be protected against is parvovirus and distemper. The following thresholds are the stages in which a dog should be vaccinated and which vaccinations your pets should be vaccinated for. Well, I mean, vaccination is obviously crucial and dogs should get three vaccinations starting at about 8 to 10 weeks of age and then 10 to 12 weeks of age and then 14 to 16 weeks of age. So they need to be boosted three times in the first four months of life and then they should be boosted annually thereafter. And the vaccinatable diseases in dogs, three important ones, rabies, parvovirus and distemper. Rabies obviously carries 100% mortality. Distemper is a devastating disease too. It doesn't affect human beings, but once a dog is symptomatic with distemper, the outcome is generally really poor. And the only way to prevent it is vaccination, and vaccination against distemper is particularly effective. Parvovirus is another devastating disease in puppies, which is also vaccinatable um, and can largely be prevented through vaccination. So vaccination is crucial in the first four months of life and then nearly thereafter. Other than that, general care of a pet would require, obviously, nutrition, sufficient shelter, regular deworming, and seeking veterinary care if there is any illness or worry about the animal's health. Yes, that was a story from uh, our producer, Bridget LePere, about rabies. And I hope it gave you a more realistic understanding of this disease that can be extremely dangerous both to humans and your favorite pet. So I hope that if you have a dog in your life or even a cat in your life or an animal of some kind, that you have listened and learned a little bit about something that you can do to vaccinate and make sure that this isn't something that affects you. We are going on to other things next on the show. Keep listening because up next it is Unscience. This is the Science Inside with Elna. 
Hello and welcome to the show. It is now the little break from the serious stuff that we take to have some fun on the show. It is a science story, a little bit of research that very much has an influence on your life, but is going to make you go, what? It is Unscience, which is the part of the show where we look at ridiculous research and things that you won't believe scientists spend their time, energy and money on. (laughs) It's sort of our communal joke around science, but it is real scientific research. Today's information comes from independent.co.uk and the music, or rather the sounds, are from FinSounds and Soundboard.com. Let's get into it. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. I hear some snoring sounds, and to find out more about our unscience this week, I have our, one of our producers, Lebo, with me. What is happening here? Yes, definitely. That was a snoring sound, and I'm pretty sure most people out here would love to squeeze in a few more hours of shut-eye into their day but they end up having to sacrifice their rest for work or any other commitment that they have while to all you hard-working coarse-chowing people cutting down on sleep beware not only does it make you want to hug your coffee machine but sleep can shorten your life expectancy yes research has proven this It has proven that less than six hours of sleep on a regular basis could kill you sooner than expected. Okay, I feel like you've gotten very personal here, Level, because I'm not too great on getting enough sleep. I always feel a little bit tired, even if I do get my eight hours. And that's okay. I can live with those consequences. I can live with having an extra cup of coffee. But now you are telling me this might kill me. Please don't. (laughs) Maybe just don't. How exactly did the researchers find this out? Okay, well, they found out that when a person doesn't sleep, their body releases a hormone which increases their heart rate and blood pressure, which inevitably causes health issues. In fact, sleeping for less than six hours on a regular basis can affect your attention span, your concentration and your memory. Now, I know a lot of students are going to want to listen up at that because a lot of us, when we are cramming for tests, we think, okay, we'll just pull an all-nighter and it'll be fine. Well, I'll remember everything in the morning. I am one of those better under stress people, they say. <laughs> but you're saying, no, this is all pointless. It might affect your memory. Actually, not sleeping for less than... Sorry, excuse me. Not sleeping enough affects your long-term memory rather than your short-term memory, which is what students generally use under stress. That experiment was performed on a show called Brain Games, and it turned out that the subjects had better short-term memory after not sleeping for 36 hours straight. So we can still depend on the good old CPF method when things get tough. CPF, is this a scientific term? (laughs) It's a classic, cram, pass and forget. (laughs) Loved by students everywhere. (laughs) Definitely. Now back to sleep being dangerous for us. A scientist from Surrey University found that more than 700 genes are altered when someone regularly compromises their sleep. 
This also explains why health issues arise when people don't get enough sleep. I mean, you're altering, you're basically twisting and turning 700 plus genes in your body. Wow. And I think it's one of those things that's so easy to skip out on in our lives now. We think, oh, it's fine. I really need to study or I really need to finish this thing or hustle a little harder or get an extra session in the gym in or whatever it might be, maybe more time with friends. But it's having such a big effect on our health, actually, eventually. You did mention this a little bit, but what kind of problems in terms of health problems are associated with this lack of sleep? A general outline of the health issues that one may encounter when they cut down on sleep include diabetes, obesity, and heart disease. Okay. And yet, as scary as it sounds, in today's society, it's actually quite difficult to get enough sleep. So what is if somebody says to you, thanks for scaring me, Lebo, but what am I supposed to do about this? Are there not any other ways to reduce the effects of lack of sleep and maybe get to live a little bit longer? Yes, definitely. There are ways. Uh, you can start eating healthy. You can exercise. So go join the gym, drink less alcohol and eliminate smoking completely. Or you could just take a nap in the afternoon, catch up on your snooze time. And that's a good way to just refresh your body. Preferably not in a lecture, if you can help <laughs> it. No, that's, yeah, <laughs> that that's true. not the best place to have a nap, even though maybe some, some people from more boring cl- classes would differ yeah. with me. Okay, so I guess napping sounds like a pretty good thing to me. Yes, even though napping is a really good thing, well, sounds like a really good thing to all of us, be careful. You don't want to nap for too long because too much sleep could kill you too. What? (laughs) Just like too little sleep, too much sleep could cause health issues, which could result in an early death as well. So too much or too little of anything can kill us. There's just no pleasing you and your sleep science. (laughs) But here you go. If you're listening to this and you were still planning to be up till 2 or 3 a.m. doing an assignment or just having fun with your friends, maybe rethink it a little bit and get a little bit more shut eye because that's what we learned today in our Unscience. Keep listening because after the break, we get into very different science with our scientists behind the science. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back to The Science Inside. This is the time in the show where we try to make science something that all of us can relate to. And the best way to do that is, of course, to talk to the scientists behind the science pick their brain about not only what they do, but why they do it and how it all came about. And often I am so impressed by these interviews because we see a little bit of the passion and the purpose that people have for what they're doing. 
So our scientist today is a senior lecturer in chemistry at the University of Pretoria. Her name is Dr. Noawazi Nombona, and she has research interests in a variety of things around nanomaterials. So specifically, the application and development of these nanomaterials for solar energy conservation, a very important topic, of course, here in South Africa. She also works in the fields of environmental monitoring and nanoelectrochemistry. She has journal articles out in the South African Journal of Chemistry as well as some other places. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So developing materials that can harness solar energy is, of course, a challenge that is quite interesting in a country like ours that has a somewhat diverse uh, energy mix. This is the challenge you've chosen to take on. What key properties are found in nanomaterials that make them a possible solution for you? Um, well, solar cell development is very important because of the economic factor. Now, the key properties that uh, nanomaterials bring is that they actually show a, a larger optical path for the absorption of light, and the light that has been captured by these materials does not um, actually travel a long path. And by doing that, you're reducing recombination, which will actually make your cell more efficient. And you can also design the nanomaterial depending on the type of cell that you want to have. So it gives that flexibility in the absorber, and that is what actually makes them remarkable materials for solar cell research. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people listening out there say, that sounds great, but I don't really know what a nanomaterial <laughs> is. Oh, yes. Um, a nanomaterial um, is actually like a very, very small particle, okay, in the atomic scale. I can say that if you take the strand of your hair, a nanomaterial will be several thousand times smaller than that width of a single strand of hair. And um, it is because of the small size that we see these properties because we get a lot of um, surface interactions that dominate. And um, that is the, the properties that we're exploring from um, these nanomaterials. Mm. So nano basically means size, nanometer in size. And how do you pick a, pati- a particular nanomaterial to work on? It, it actually depends on your application. So if you have a problem, um, the nice thing about nanotechnology is that you can design um, the type of material that you need for the type of problem that you have. So if, for instance, you want to have a material that will absorb a certain amount of energy, then you can actually synthesize, you can make that type of material that will have that particular bad, uh, band gap energy. So that's the that's the nice thing about these materials that you don't there's, there's, you don't really have to choose from a list of materials you can design your own for your own application. Mm, that's incredible, and I'm sure some people might be listening and saying, "I've seen solar cells. Maybe I even have solar power." to warm the water in my house, on top of my house, or I've seen it somewhere else. I thought this problem already has a solution. Why do we need a new one? 
Well, the the current solar cells are actually quite expensive to manufacture, especially for large-scale electricity generation. So that's the problem. We need to have solar cells that are more cheaper and, you know, that are more affordable, especially for our our communities. Because you go to the townships, you don't see solar cells, um, you know, those in, in, in the townships. So it's uh, you mainly see them in urban areas where they can afford. So it's only government that is now trying to bring in those solar cells in townships. But again, it's 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 still expensive. So if we can have or improve our current solar cells by incorporating them with cheaper materials that will allow for better light efficiency, then um, we can have cheaper cells for the production of of everyone, mm. which is the whole point. I, I guess especially because in terms of solar energy, the current conventional solar cells are a big investment, especially if you're living in a township or aren't able to make that in, initial investment, even though you will be getting cheaper energy later. What you're saying is if we can bring down that initial investment, yes. it makes it a lot more accessible to yes. people. And I imagine also it might be a solution in places uh, such as more rural areas. Exactly. Because you, you find that, um, you know, government will always say things take time because there's no money and, you know, we need to roll it out. And with, with all the corruption and everything else, um, you just you, you just don't know. But if you if you now give them, a, you know, an, an option that is way cheaper than, you know, what they're actually trying to supply to the people in the rural areas, then there wouldn't be... That we wouldn't be facing the problem that we're facing currently with electricity and mm-hmm. people trying to steal electricity from ESCOM. So, yeah, renewable energy is actually quite um, quite important for rural communities, for communities in the townships, and, and actually even urban communities. And how is your process going in terms of developing these nanomaterials and turning them into solar cells? Have you achieved it? Well, what we do is we test the efficiencies of um, the solar cells that we're trying to make because um, there's no point in developing a, a solar cell that is more or less lower efficiency compared to what's been out there. So our, our challenge really is to divine or design novel um, solar cells that will be much more effective they could be giving us the same efficiency as what we see commercially, but if you can lower the cost, then we're also winning in, in the same breath. And once you get to the place where this can go uh, to market and be rolled out, will it look and function the same way as the solar cells that, work, uh, that we know now? They'll probably be much smaller because I'm sure you've seen the, the solar panels, how big they are and how much space they take up um, so these would be much well at a slow at a lower scale but uh, with improved or even the same efficiency but better price okay that is what we would like to hear i'm <laughs> sure tell me a little bit more about you now because we've heard the science you're clearly passionate about the solution that you're creating how did you decide to work in this field of research? Um, well, I guess I believe that science has to be purposeful, especially in the country like ours, where you know we have low unemployment. Um, so science has to 
bring about that purpose in our communities, especially those that are, dis- that are disadvantaged. Because I find that in Africa, the context relevance of science is, is not seen. So people think that science is this elite subject that only certain type of people can do and no one understands what they do. And it doesn't filter down to the communities. So the reason why I chose solar cell research is because I know the impact that this could potentially have on on our communities. Mm. And did you always know, even as a little girl, that science was the thing you wanted to do? No, absolutely not. Um, Even when I was in matric, I remember I I thought I was going to go to UCT and do... um, quantity surveying i had no idea so for me i just stumbled across this chemistry and i was like what a fascinating world so i'm I'm not i'm not that traditional you know those traditional people would say that i've always known growing up like this i knew i've always wanted to be this no i just i just came up i came across chemistry in, in, in varsity and it just made sense and and i've just stuck to it since then Mm. I love in what you're saying, everything you've been saying about your field of research has made it so clear to me that there is clearly very deep scientific research, very particular work going into it. But there is this extremely clear um, goal, on the other hand, of what we want to achieve. And it's very practical and, and very sort of physical in the same way. And I like that you're able to think across both of these spheres in your work. Yes, because for me, that's the definition of science. You've just summed up the definition of science. <laughs> you, yeah, that, that was a, a lovely sum up, I must say. <laughs> so we love asking our guests on the show this. I'm going to give you your chance, your scientific soapbox for a second. If you could just tell ordinary listeners about one thing, to do with your field of research that maybe has been misunderstood or people don't know about, what would what would that thing be? What do you want people to know? Hmm. That has been misunderstood. Is that we don't have lives or <laughs> now this is more on a personal level and that it is boring and that you have to be super smart to do science. Um yeah, it's 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 not that at all. It's about passion. I think um, passion and the love for your people, the love for your community, to want to bring about change, you know, and being inspired by by where you come from, you know. Because I remember there was a time when my my grandmother or my grandfather rather um, uh, fainted. And he told me that I must go and get a particular herb and put it in water for him to drink. And, and, and that's exactly what I did. And one, two, he was up. So for me, that inspired me to know what is in this herb, you know. So science is not something that is un-African or comes from, you know, USA or Europe. We've been having it. So now we need to claim back all of that indigenous science you know, knowledge and, and use it for to benefit us. So I think maybe that might be uh, one misconception is that science has been imported, but we've been having science. Mm, and what better 
thing to do with your science than to use all of this beautiful African sunlight that we have to help people who maybe weren't able to afford it or uh, aren't able to have electricity. What a great goal to work towards with your chemistry. We've been speaking to Dr. Norwazi Nombona, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Pretoria in chemistry, trying to use nanomaterials for solar energy. Thank you so much. She has been the scientist behind the science for us tonight. You are still listening to The Science Inside. This is The Science Inside with Elna. Another episode of The Science Inside behind us today on the show. We spoke about rabies, quite a serious topic, trying to understand, especially if you are a dog owner or have a dog in your life, you may want to catch the podcast on vits.journalism.co.za forward slash science just to make sure you know everything you need to know. Also, on Unscience, we had some bad news for people like myself who are night owls who very often do not get enough sleep. Apparently, it might shorten your lifespan. We had a look at that. And then we spoke to Dr. Nolwazi Nombona about using nano materials for new and cheaper ways of rolling out solar energy in South Africa. Very exciting project she's working on. All of that is on the show. As I said, you can grab it on the podcast of The Science Inside. A big Thank you goes to all of our guests featured on the show, including Dr. Nolwazi Nombona and uh, Andy Lizovich. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lepere, Harmony Malefi, Lebohang Madisha and Gloria Mabuza. And of course, as always, all of our tech is done by the wonderful Kutwano Sahame. You can find the podcast, as I said, on vits.journalism.coza forward slash science. Social media, find us as... Vow FM, both on Twitter and Facebook. The Science Inside is produced by the Vits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. My name is Alna Schutz, and I will be with you again next week. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on Vow FM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.